So this is contrasted with um, the title of this evening's talk, uh, which I think is the, um, the Eye of the Storm, uh, really a talk on equanimity. And I want to go back a little bit to the first uh, discourse that I did on this retreat, where I tried to kind of dramatize the, um, the night, uh, the path of, of the Buddha and the night of the Buddha's, or the time of his awakening process uh, under the Bodhi tree. And I think I, part of the story was, was um, speaking about how he abandoned the the cultivation of samadhi as, a, as an end in itself, when he saw that it was um, somehow uh, unreliable, changing, uh, not, um, not something that he could rest his, um, not something that he could rely on as a, as a permanent sense of well-being. And then his continued pursuit of that reliable refuge and how he then used the power of his mind, the steadying of his mind, the moment-to-moment mindfulness, and carefully paid attention to the flow of experiences, the sensations, just as you have, the thoughts, the images, the moods, the intentions, the pleasant, the unpleasant, all the forces of Mara. And as he paid attention, uh, allowing the light of his own awareness to touch what was presenting itself, that light got brighter and brighter and brighter, as I, I am absolutely certain it has gotten for you, as you have paid attention over and over again to the flow of experience. And as his mind became brighter and brighter, it began to reflect everything quite clearly. And he sensed that his mind was shining and we often hear that passage, and I think it's been read several times on the retreat, luminous is the mind, brightly shining. It's colored by the attachments that visit it. This, the unlearned mind, um, doesn't see, and therefore there's no cultivation of the mind. Luminous is the mind, brightly shining, but it is untouched by the attachments that visit it. Thus the, the yogi understands, therefore there is a cultivation of the heart, or heart and mind. So as his mind saw the different defilements and the different appearances that, uh, that came and went, that as they came into very sharp focus, he saw that whatever and what really allowed him to, to move into that understanding that the true nature of his mind was untouched by what visit, visited, he saw very carefully, and as you've been doing over and over again, that whatever presented itself was in that flow of experience, was that. It was a flow. It was arising, appearing, passing away. And that universal understanding, that universal truth of impermanence revealed itself to him. That there was nothing whatsoever that uh, did not have that nature to appear and to disappear. Anything that was knowable to the senses 
anything in the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, mind, appearing and disappearing. And he saw that whatever was known moment to moment that was appearing and disappearing could therefore not be said to be reliable and to cling to it would be, would be a mistake, a misplaced um, notion of what could give relief. To push it away would be a mistake, would cause suffering. And so he saw that it was un, and the word that's often used is unprofitable. It was not wise to, to cling. And what he realized that whatever is appearing and disappearing could not be said to be me, my, or mine. There is no self to be found in that which appears and disappears. No self-existence, no, nothing solid, nothing, uh, nothing reliable. So as these common but profound characteristics became clear in the heart and mind of the Buddha, what happened? It became absurd to engage his mind in reactivity to the various uh, experiences, to all the voices, and his mind relaxed a little. And in that relaxation, because there was not the strain of trying to make something happen, trying to rid of some, get rid of something, not only was there relaxation, but there was a great sense of steadiness. And through that careful and slow cultivation of the moment-to-moment of the -moment notice, noticing, there was not only a, a steadiness, and a relaxation, but there was a tremendous sense of strength. The strength of mind that, that was in some way, to a degree, impervious to whatever visited. And as he noticed the arising and passing of things, and his mind withdrew its normal tendency to reach and push, it became quite open. And what arose in his heart was a great joy, the joy of equanimity, the joy of a mind that is present in the midst of the, of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, but, uh, but not reactive, uh, not stuck in a, um, in a wheel of trying to manipulate, change, make something happen get rid of something, delete, which is often this tendency. If I only do it enough, that won't come back again, to delete. The Buddha said in one of his comments about this understanding as it presented itself in his mind, he said, when by knowing the impermanence of forms, sounds, odors, flavors, thoughts, one sees as at his as it actually is with proper wisdom that such things, both formerly and now, are all impermanent, dukkha or unreliable and subject to change, joy arises. Such a joy is called the joy based on renunciation, 
or equanimity. So the joy that comes, the joy of equanimity, is that state of mind, that way of being with things where you're no longer carried away by them. This is what we have been cultivating every single moment, every one of those tiny little drops of mindfulness again and again, whether or not you knew it, has been training this. Um, and each moment of mindfulness, you could say, is a moment of not getting caught up in what's present. So it is a moment, one and the same, as the Buddha, one and the same as equanimity. Kunjaji put it this way, freedom is beyond understanding, beyond the rational mind. And yet there is one intellectual grasp that is very important. It is to know that no object will give you peace of mind. If you know this, you will not be attached or attracted to the transient objects. This is dispassion. Really reflects the, the mind of the Buddha. He goes on, he says, to hold, if you hold to something other than your true nature, you will be disturbed. By holding attachment to transient things, you declare to yourself that you are not the fullness in which all is. So to me, all of the teachings, um, everything that we come to examine, to know, all the tools that we use, everything points to at least what to me seems like the only wise response to our human condition. When we really see it for what it is, the only wise response is equanimity. And in fact, in the teaching, it is the culmination of all the practices and all the teachings. It is the last factor of awakening that um, Heather spoke some about the other night. It's the fruit of, of all the development of mindfulness, of concentration, of energy, of investigation, of interest, of calm, all of that. The fruit of that navigated with the, with the practice of mindfulness, the fruit of it is equanimity. It is the last so-called parami. The paramis are the, the qualities that, um, that grow in the, in the length and breadth of one's practice generosity, patience, all the different um, qualities of mind, the culmination of all that is the, the royal quality, is the quality of equanimity. And of course, with our Brahma-vihara practice, the sublime abodes, the divine abodes, the culmination, the royal seat of, of love is actually what balances all the, the forces of love and expresses love uh, with balance is equanimity. So it really is the, it's the end-all and the be-all. Um, and the good news is that um, it, actually, it actually is something that we have ex access to, not just at the end of the, the Eightfold Path, at the end of the Seven Factors of Enlightenment, at the end of the Paramis, at the... Uh, at the end of our Brahma-vihara practice, but it is, it is the very nature of our minds. It is the, 
what we remind ourselves of when we practice every moment. We keep awakening that mirror that in its true nature is absolutely dead, silent, steady, strong, open. It's just a matter of getting used to it again and again and again. So I'd like to speak a little bit more about equanimity. So it's often, there are many different translations, but the, um, the most common one is, is a balanced mind. But it's often called even-mindedness. It's called uh, even clarity of mind is sometimes seen as synonymous with equanimity. When I was reflecting on it myself today, I. I like to think of equanimity as the non-suffering mind. Whenever there's equanimity, there is not suffering. Just like I, it dawned on me at, at one point in reflecting on the factors of enlightenment that, um, that that sense of curiosity or interest, I realized that I could not be curious or interested and suffer in the same moment. In that, because in that moment, my mind is not resisting, not grasping, it's not, it's not denying, it's just right there. And when the mind is, when we're really present, in those instants, it's as though whatever suffering we have been immersed in, no matter how long, how deep, how real it has seemed, in that moment of seeing it for what it is, with a balanced heart, it's non-suffering. The word is also translated, the word upeka, which is the word for equanimity, is translated as to look over, to, to that sense of being able to look over without being caught up in what's being seen. And it reminds, reminds me of the, of the Dzogchen tradition of Vajrayana Buddhism, where the uh, the essence of the practice is being introduced to what they call the view from above, the view of the nature of your, of your heart that really encompasses everything and called, sometimes called maha-ati, which is that mind or heart of complete openness and transparency. And this is really available to us and, and really expresses the, at least that boundless quality of equanimity. This quality of equanimity, when developed again and again, reminded of again and again, uh, brings a sense of peace, strength, confidence, and faith that there is a that there is something brewing here. There's something that we can rely on in our about the practice, about our own mind. It's often described as as Gil Fransdale does as the ease that comes from, from seeing the big picture, from having some perspective. You see how everything appears and disappears. You see how it's not graspable. You see how it's not, it's not me, it's not mine, it's just a happening. This is a, this is a wide view. It it's, comes from, that, from coming out of our, that narrow vortex of, of confusion of me and mine 
Heather shared with me, a, Heather Martin shared with me a wonderful little metaphor that she uses. She thinks of the, of the um, confusion and as like a little ball and how a ball, you put a ball down and it's, it rolls all over the place and it's not very stable. And then as our lens widens, at least my way of saying it, then the metaphor of the bowl that is then open and receptive. And then as it widens even further, it becomes impartial. Then it's like a, a plate that's very stable, can include everything, wide and spacious, and balanced at the same time. quality of metta is uh, colloquially translated in India, the word upekka, or the similar word as, as to see with patience, or to see with understanding. And uh, the way Gil Fransdale, who, who's done a lot of writing on, on equanimity, talked about it as, uh, and perhaps this is a metaphor that's used in, the, in the, uh, some of the Theravada literature, but it's a quality of a kind of uh, grandmotherly love that, has, uh, that loves her grandchildren, but, has, but because she's had children, she doesn't get caught up in the dramas of her, of her grandchildren, that she has this kind of um, view, this wide view that's in, imbued with patience, with understanding that, yeah, this is what uh, grandchildren go through. A wisdom that comes from seeing what's going on and understanding what's going on. There is another word that's often translated as equanimity in the, in the suttas. It's the word, and I'll say it to you and you can look it up on your own, it's called tatra majata. Tatra majata, which means to stand in the middle of all this or being right in the middle of things. And it's the balance that comes from a sense of inner strength, a kind of core. And this is really what you've been training every single moment, is this core, being able to sit in the middle of what's going on. And I can see even the room, you can feel the vibration is more refined, is more smooth, your bodies are, are quieter, they're more steady, there's a lot less restlessness, just the inevitable result that reflects in the body what's occurring in our mind. It's the natural um, strength and steadiness that comes from, from mental strength. And mental strength is just the, the frequency of being in the middle of things, moment to moment, and this is a function of mindfulness. So this quality of equanimity means to be able to experience the whole range of experience, the whole range of pleasurable experience without getting caught up in, in craving, the unpleasant experience, the painful experience, and this is obviously more challenging, but the unpleasant, painful experience without becoming afraid, tensing up, withdrawing, condemning, and the neutral, being able to hang out with neutral experience without uh, 
needing to fill it up with something without turning it into just some kind of filler on our way to something else. And it's this quality of equanimity that can pervade all these three experiences. But it is not, it is not the quality, it is not, uh, it's cool, but it is not indifferent. And it's said that it's near enemy. Many of you in learning about the Brahma Viharas, each one has its near enemy. And the near enemy of equanimity is indifference, which is really a much more closeted, aversive quality uh, that's kind of shut off and it expresses itself as in the different as subtle kinds of pride or separation and can sometimes feel like um, equanimity, but it's not really. It's not fully engaged, fully connected. The far enemy, while I'm talking about it, is, is craving, clinging, and attachment. So in, the, in equanimity, not having this quality of indifference or being cut off, it means still being able to be deeply impacted by things. So if somebody has, as has happened to me many times taking this seat, somebody tells me, you know, you have no business doing this. You don't seem so awake. You don't, you know, people make comments. I've, I've been the object of aggressive comments over the years. Um, <laughs> you know, I got in the middle of uh, the hornet's nest of somebody's uh, multiple hindrance attack <laughs> from time to time. You know, from notes left about how I was going through the lunch line or washing my dishes to <laughs> Dharma talks to what well, anything. And those things, whether or not I am, I could say that I had lots of equanimity, but those things really, more often than I would like to admit, really hit the heart and they land. Uh, and sometimes if I've been really aggressively attacked verbally, I, it has hit my heart in such a way that I have I've just, it, internally, I've crumbled in a certain way. But yet, there has been through, at least I can say, through the whole course of this, there has been that quality of saying, okay, this is what's happening now. And so equanimity can even pervade our heart breaking or our heart being hurt, um, witnessing something that, um, that is extremely heart-wrenching it doesn't mean that we cut off and have no reactivity. I mean, it, it can express itself as a complete calm in the midst of a storm, but it, it's, its reach to me is much bigger than that. I was tested, um, some of you know about this, but uh, I think it's about a year and four, a year and five months ago. I had just returned from leading a retreat in Canada and had a, a, a messenger bag completely filled with 22 years of all of my archives of Dharma talks and readings and everything that I had accumulated that was, was of value to me. And I left it uh, in the front of the church where I lead my group because I didn't have time to actually take things out. I just took the whole thing in because I had just come back from being out of town and uh, went to lock the doors of the church. And when I came back, my bag had been stolen. Everything had been taken. And naturally, I had some reaction to that. 
I went into a, a kind of shock of, and dismay <laughs> and, um, and it lasted a few instants. And then I went about dealing with what I had to do and I realized inwardly, this is what's happening. Whether I like it or not, it's what's happening. There was still equanimity. There was still the understanding, oh, this feels terrible. I cried, I did this, I did that, and this is how it is. So it doesn't mean that we just sit there and, oh yeah, 22 years of stuff. <laughs> it means you've, you, you feel the whole range of things, but you know this is how it is, whether I like it or not. I've had a few losses, um, near and dear ones, and uh, wretched with um, the sense of the loss. And yet, even pervading that was the sense, yeah, this is, this is how it is. Didn't really have that quality of, of aversion, except there was sometimes equanimity toward the aversion. There wasn't the quality of grasping, or there was the quality of equanimity toward the grasping at, at that person. But if you impose this idea that that your equanimity somehow has to be, uh, it's not the equanimity of non-feeling. It's the equanimity, it's the balance that, that allows that whole range. It means that there is that, you're in touch with that wisdom or understanding or that inner sense that knows that you can withstand the waves of what's happening. Some of the metaphors used in the suttas uh, as a, it's like you are like a solid rock, not stirred by the wind. Now, now I would call the different moods, emotions, thoughts, images, that's the wind. But that place that knows this is how it is, that place that sees whatever I'm experiencing, this is that, that rock quality. And in the suttas they say, so a sage is not moved by praise and blame. It's an interesting inquiry to see what happens. Another metaphor that's used is, uh, as a deep lake, it's clear and undisturbed, so a sage becomes clear upon hearing the Dharma. Um, such a person who, like the earth, is untroubled. Image of the sun, image of that deep lake. So equanimity is seen as the protection, that in us that grows, that is the protection, especially in the course of our, in our daily life, not just on retreat, of the inevitable, protecting us from the inevitable worldly winds, the eight worldly winds that no being is immune to. The winds of praise and blame, success and failure, sometimes called loss and gain, pleasure and pain, and fame and shame, and sometimes called disrepute. And we see in, our, in any of us, even on retreat, if you get 
too enamored with your pleasant experience. Uh, when the winds change, <laughs> you get kind of disappointed. So if you get too attached to success, get too attached to praise, get too attached to fame, get too attached to pleasure, when the direction of the wind changes, we tend to get uh, blown out or bothered. So the invitation is to see these winds as they blow in our practice and to remember that we have this royal seat and the seat that it grows through this practice of mindfulness and through really the continuity of our practice. This is what makes those disparate strings form into that tight rope, that tight steadiness and that, and that, um, that brightness and, and uh, wakefulness of mind that comes from from rubbing again and again against what it is that's happening, meeting it with our awareness. So you, you understand that equanimity is not always peaceful, calm. Uh, sometimes things are quite dramatic. But it, it's the steadiness and the strength that's born of mindfulness and insight that uh, allows us to actually sit in the eye of that storm Another metaphor that's used is being that, that um, open space at the center of a, of a Dharma wheel, or any wheel for that matter, that open space. And you can even sense it right now, just, just imagining that, that space that you, you are. Notice the impact on your mind and body when you are that center, when you are that eye of the hurricane, you are that little circle. We can invite and invoke that feeling or that, that inner strength and steadiness by saying to ourselves inwardly, as one person suggested, may I open to the silence and stillness within me. May I open to the silence and stillness within me. It's something that you can do when you need some equanimity. People have said that they, at time, from time to time on the retreat, that uh, they're a little bit afraid to sit down or afraid of what's next. Or um, One of the uh, resolutions that I've used over the, the years to actually help me recover a sense of equanimity in the middle of a, a practice period is a, is a phrase that I will repeat three times and I'll offer it to you and even see what its impact even as I say it right now. I will take what the Dharma gives me. I will take what the Dharma gives me. I will take what the Dharma gives me. Another um, passage that, while, I'm, while it's on my mind, I've used a lot uh, in the last 18 years since I met this teacher, um, H.W.L. Punja, is a line that I freely give to you. He says, accept what comes, reject what goes. <laughs> now, I used to hear this as a kind of um, tongue-in-cheek expression, huh? accept what comes and reject what goes. But then I realized that there was some, at least it began, began to mean something much more helpful to me. So the accept what comes made perfect sense. The reject what goes, that seemed kind of funny, became, became this sense of 
reject what goes means when something goes away, act as if you planned it that way. Accept what comes and reject what goes. And I noticed that when I, when I acted as if, that I planned for things to pass away, that, that unshakable strength came back into my heart, into my mind. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the various um, domains that equanimity grows and how we can begin to, to recognize it. So equanimity develops through, um, through that impartiality that's toward everything, that ability to see everything equally toward all the phenomena. That means to treat thoughts equally, to moods, to sensations, to sounds, to begin to use every experience within those doors of perception. Having our mind in that with that quality of maha-ati wide open to any sense experience this as, as a general attitude. One of the um, beautiful images that I heard from one of our um, um, teachers, Stephen Smith, who has taught over the years a lot at um, IMS and has taught a little bit at Spirit Rock, he grew up in the islands of Hawaii and, uh, and did a lot of outrigger canoeing and surfing and this and that when he was younger. But he told stories on retreats of the Samoans who would travel by outrigger from the, from the islands to, to Hawaii from, the, uh, from Samoa. And how, how as they would go across the sea, they would, they would somehow be able to navigate because they were in perfect attunement with the with the sea, their senses wide open, being able to, to use that, um, you know, everything. And, the, and all of the senses balanced with that quality of, of pure awareness, that quality of knowing, of mindfulness, that really acts as kind of a rudder. And so you can carry that image of the, uh, of the outrigger cruising through the ocean, dealing with the different elements, and, but with, with perfect poise perfect balance. I thought about um, I really love to play golf. And golf is one of those games that that has uh, you're, you deal a lot with the, the elements of nature, you deal a lot with your own mind, you deal a lot with your body. And when you are really, and what I'll speak for myself, when I'm very collected and composed, there is that sense that, for example, the distance between things shrinks, and there is the capacity to, to actually both, um, by just mingling with all the senses, mingling with the environment, mingling with the vision of what I want to happen, in this case, that produces a kind of magic that I can't explain and it's, it's something that, you know, I debated about even wh whether to talk about it, but it's, it's that, um, that current of immediacy and uh, concentration and mindfulness brought together with all the senses wide open. And this is the quality of equanimity, 
that comes with um, sense experience. We find as we make the gentle effort to be present, to really encompass our um, mind and our body with, with present awareness, again and again gathering, using those, that love muscle of, of connecting with what's present and then sustaining that and with all the fruits that come of that, with the, the comfort that comes and the interest that comes and the steadiness that comes, we begin to see that that process of finding our balance of our energy and our effort begins to reveal what is considered one of the ten kinds of equanimity, this equanimity of effort where you see in your own mind in those moments that it's not too tight, it's not too loose, where you can start to intuit what equanimity is in regard to wise effort. And it's something to pay attention to as we practice. The story of the, the Buddha's awakening speaks of, the, of the other, um, another one of the kinds of equanimity, which is the equanimity toward the, the three, those three common characteristics, where we use impermanence as a, as a uh, doorway, as a gate to that sense of, of non-reactiveness, to that sense of balance. So we pay close attention to the changing nature of things. We also pay attention very carefully to the, to the unreliability of things, the unsatisfactoriness of things. And through that we find the equanimity toward those conditions. And we, we allow the, the unfolding of the selflessness of things and we develop that capacity to see that things are just appearing and disappearing on their own. No me, no you, no self at all, just what there is presenting itself. And our, we find the equanimity toward these formations, toward, toward the three characteristics. Ajahn Sumedho. We discover equanimity, a kind of equanimity as it, as it relates to feeling, the feeling tone. Not just the feeling tone of changing experiences, but an inner feeling of something slightly different, um, but, but actually quite strong and available, a, a feeling that is neither happy nor unhappy, realized as, an, as the equanimity uh, as relates to feeling. We can start to notice that. And it's very easy in the course of our lives when we feel a kind of balance and steadiness, neither happy nor unhappy, to overlook it, to, to treat it as um, associated with boredom or not much happening or you know, where's the entertainment? But as that grows in our, in our practice, it becomes, we can actually have a certain um, passion toward that neutrality. Even right now, as you, as you sit here, neither happy nor unhappy, maybe. See how that is. 
If you notice, this kind of talk has that tone to it. I notice I'm having that tone as I, as I share these, these words, the tone of neither being happy nor unhappy. I'm not opposed to being happy. Happy would be great, but unhappy would be great. Well, maybe not. <laughs> but neither happy nor unhappy is also great. It's just the way it is. It speaks to that, that uh, tendency to need, the kind of need that's just conditioned, that's addictive, that where we need to be entertained. Perhaps need the Dharma talk to be entertaining. And how is it for you when it's not so entertaining? When it's just Dharma. I really got happy when I said that. <laughs> oh, equanimity behind laughter. So we also begin to recognize the equanimity of mental balance. That inner sense that our mind, the energy of our mind, is neither deficient or nor is it uh, excessive. We, there's a kind of a balance that we can know. It's hard to put words to it, but yet we know it in our practice. And that, that kind of mind that is balanced, it naturally falls into a kind of steadiness and stillness that's either, neither deficient nor in excess. And that steadiness and stillness, often what follows in the wake of that is that sense of being somewhat free of, the, um, of hindrances. And, the, and then, of course, if hindrances arise and that has been cultivated and that's been understood, then it, that balanced mind meets the hindrances and, and anything, of course, that is met with the light of awareness, it, um, it is it's liberated, it loosens, does not, it can't withstand that kind of balanced attention. So there is, of course, the type of equanimity that is associated with the quality of inner stillness, inner peace and tranquility that comes with the practice or the cultivation of samadhi, which is really the result of being aware moment to moment of changing experiences, also the, the fruit of, of just being um, mindful every moment. Also, it becomes the fruit of connecting with, with, um, with one experience over and over, for example, the breath. It's connected with, in these times, a kind of equanimity that comes when there is not a lot of mental activity. And the Buddha used an image for that kind of equanimity that's, that's born of, of the mind that is well collected and composed. As um, he used the image of an artesian spring. And if you think of, of lotus pads floating just below the surface of the water. And that, so there's movement of the water itself, the water above, the water below, 
and all around it, but the lotus petal itself floats in a still, suspended state within the currents moving all around it. This is from the Majjhima Nikaya. And as that silence, that stillness and tranquility becomes stronger and stronger, the Buddha used another image, that of being swathed in soft cotton, cushioned from the swirl and the flow of noise and activity all around, a kind of still center. So this quality, of course, can be brought, it is within the nature of our minds, it can be brought to the flow of experience, moment to moment. Or this kind of equanimity can grow uh, into states of very strong uh, concentration. And it's said that this kind of equanimity that comes from a heart and mind that have come together in harmony and are well collected and composed, that it is this, these moments, we'll say, or this experience of that kind of collectedness that begins to, to loosen. The karmic fruit of this is it begins to loosen our interest in, in experiences and states of mind that actually get in the way of calm, peace, and steadiness. Any of the, the dharmas that are that are um, overly stimulating. And when this is developed very strongly, this kind of composure and collectedness, just that state of equipoise, that state of balance that comes from strong uh, concentration literally purifies, it weakens uh, all, anything within our mind or our body that opposes calm, that goes against calm. And that kind of equanimity that's born of concentration. So that night, when the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree and rested in the joy of equanimity. His mind, clear, composed, collected. He began to see the, for himself the, the nature of reality. And it's said that uh, through the three, so-called three watches of the night, he saw with a refined vision his own past lives. He saw the birth and the death of beings according to their karma, their actions, and all the causes and conditions coming together, and, and had a liberating insight into how suffering in our lives is born from ignorance and ends through wisdom. And as he saw through, the, saw through this um, illusion of self, through the confronting of the three characteristics and the unreliability of experience, as his mind surveyed the world and uh, saw the beings wandering endlessly astray in samsara's vicious cycle, 
as his mind released, relaxed its, its fist of grasping for the world through the clinging to, that with the weakening of his own ignorance, his, his mind opened, it said. It said that at the moment that the morning, first morning star appeared in the sky, his mind opened to the deathless. And having seen through that illusion of his, own, of his own separateness, he saw through quite naturally with that eye of wisdom, with that balanced equanimity, he saw through the illusion of other. The obvious reality that if there is no self existing independently from all things, that there is no other. And he saw that, that the so-called other, the all beings, were none other than part of the fabric of his, own, of his own being, that no being existed independently apart from any other being, that everything was woven in a um, complete interdependent tapestry of causes and conditions, that each of us, our bodies, if we really reflect on it, came into being by causes, not by our own will or wish. Our bodies have grown, you can't tell it not to grow. They've aged, you can't tell it not to age. Even our decisions have been made with the influence of the myriad uh, influences of parents and teachers and ignorance and all the best information coming together the only way that they've been able to in any one moment. And it's clear to us if we, if we practice that not one of us can be any different than the way we are right now, up to this moment, given all those forces. And the Buddha became aware of this on that as his mind opened. And he saw, he surveyed the world Appreciating this in my own practice has given me a, a lot more, a lot less um, judgment of myself, a lot more mercy. Uh, one of our colleagues, James Barras, reminded, um, reminded me he was going to, he, he asked me if he could use a story that I had told uh, in, his, in a, a book that he's writing, and so I, I just had the idea that I would tell you that I, I realized it was really a, a teaching for me on both equanimity and compassion. But I was in the middle of a long practice period. Yikes. In the middle of a long practice period, uh, I think almost 20, more than 20 years ago, in the middle of a three-month retreat, I was sitting in a little room at, at Insight Meditation Society that was about... Um, about this wide and about 10 feet long. This was before they redid the place. And I had the great good fortune of having the main water pipe, drainage pipe from where all the water would come when it rained, going right down through my room, which at times became deafeningly loud to go along with the deafeningly loud sounds of my own mind. 
And in, that, in the process of that retreat, just dealing with my mind, I became very, um, uh, became very raw and vulnerable. And I really saw over the course of, of you know, many practice periods, but that one in particular, that not only was there a kind of deconstructing of reality that happens, a kind of seeing through the, the veils of separateness and the breaking up of my normal concepts of self and body into these constituent little vibrations and pulses, there was also at the same time a parallel process of psychological regression. I had, I had, redu- I had been reduced to one-year-old. And at the time in my practice where I felt the most raw and vulnerable, I, I looked around my room and everything was painful and it felt like it was impinging on my on my senses, and I felt completely uh, over the top. And, but as I looked, I looked around and I saw that my room was filled with stuff. Funny thing, I had so much stuff, and I know Sally spoke the other night about the different character types, the, gra- the greed type, the hatred type, and the deluded type. I understood, and I understand myself as just by conditioning Again, causes and conditions set in motion before I knew what was happening. I consider myself a greed type. And so I saw that I had way more stuff than I needed. And when I was really troubled, I would often think about either buying more of something or, or, you know, what I was going to do or where I was going to wear or, you know, bizarre things that go through our minds on retreats. And I had been, in a subtle way, kind of critical of all my stuff especially knowing a little bit about greed, hatred, and ignorance. (laughs) And at this moment that I was one year old, looking around the room, I realized um, at that moment of being so raw that I needed to be held. I needed somebody to, to hold me, just as any baby would. And of course, in that time, there was nobody there to hold me. And so using whatever means I had, I rolled over onto my little mat where I slept that had a few pillows on it. I wrapped the pillows around me and, and held myself. And then just started wailing, wailing and wailing and wailing like a little one-year-old would. And, and I've seen this with my daughter Molly, you know, that sense of just needing to be held sometimes. But at that time, I looked up and I looked around all the stuff in the room and I realized that all that stuff was the way that I had been trying to hold myself. And this incredible crack happened, this wave of compassion. Just seeing that interconnection between all the actions that had come before just organically, lawfully come together into this addictive pattern of, of wanting things or wanting experience or you know, whatever that was. And that door opened, and it really has never closed since then. And that, and that doorway gave me much easier, more balanced, more equanimous relationship with all of the myriad uh, patterns that go through my mind. As you know, Of course, there are some patterns that are still hard to bear, but there's an understanding that these have come together through causes and conditions not through anybody's will or wish. And so this 
in some way, this understanding of conditions coming together, things being as they are, is the quality of equanimity uh, as a Brahma-vihara, as the, as the um, balancing, steadying force of, the, of the, um, the boundless qualities of love that opens our hearts in the way that they do, that touches that, that, that heart, um, when it meets pain, becomes, um, becomes compassion. And when it, be, when it meets joy, it becomes sympathetic joy. The, the force in our hearts and minds that balances that, that allows us to maintain, not to fall to some extreme, um, is the quality of equanimity. So equanimity with metta allows us to wish for happiness without being lost in craving and attachment. Equanimity with compassion gives us that unwavering sense of courage and fearlessness and allows us to face pain and misery without falling into states of grief and sorrow, not caught in our reactions. And it brings that quality of grandmotherly love, that patient attention uh, to do the work of connecting with suffering. And when equanimity meets uh, mudita, supports mudita, allowing us to feel the joy for others without falling into states of envy and jealousy, which is really probably one of our biggest hindrances. Classic phrases of reminders, and this will be offered again in more formal practice later, but some of the traditional phrases are all beings are the heirs or owners of their karma. Their happiness or their unhappiness depends on their actions, not upon my wishes for them. Another version, may we all accept things as they are. Another, I wish you happiness, joy, and contentment, and am not responsible for your decisions or your suffering. Now it sounds on the surface kind of cool, but it really is the mixed with, with um, love. It's often thought of as, a, as the love that a parent has for a child that's still boundless, still, still continuous, but know, that parent knows that they have to let them go, knows that they have to go off and do their own thing. And so equanimity does not mean we cut off, we still in whatever way we can, we try to help. We try to help ourselves. We develop our practice. We try to, we try to help others. We, our hearts break for the suffering in the world, but we, we balance it with the understanding that things are as they are, whether I like them or not. Swami uh, Chidananda puts it this way, this quality of equanimity. People are unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Love them anyway. <laughs> if you do good, people will accuse you of ulterior motives. Do good anyway. If you're successful, you win false friends and true enemies. Succeed anyway. The good you do today will be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. Honesty and frankness make you vulnerable. Be honest and frank anyway. People favor underdogs, but follow only top dogs. Fight for some underdogs anyway. 
What you spend years building may be destroyed overnight. Build anyway. People really need help, but may attack you if you help them. Help people anyway. Give the world the best you have, and you'll get kicked in the teeth. <laughs> Give the world the best you have anyway. So I want to leave you with the feeling of, um, of equanimity expressed in, in the um, words of uh, Siddhartha in, um, from Herman Hesse. Siddhartha listened. He was not listening intently, or he was listening intently, completely absorbed, quite empty, taking in everything. He felt that he had now completely learned the art of listening. He had often heard all this before, all these numerous voices in the river, but today they sounded different. He could no longer distinguish the different voices, the merry voice from the weeping voice, the childish voice from the manly voice. They all belong to each other. The lament of those who yearn, the laughter of the wise, the interwoven, the cry of indignation, the groan of the dying. They were all interwoven and interlocked, entwined in a thousand ways. And all the voices, all the goals, all the yearnings, all the sorrows, all the pleasures, all the good and evil, all of them was the world. All of them together was the stream of events, the music of life. When Siddhartha listened attentively to this river, to the song of a thousand voices, then he did not listen to the sorrow or the laughter, when he did not bind himself to any one particular voice and absorb, get absorbed into it. He heard them all, the whole, the unity. Then the great song of a thousand voices consisted of harmony. the unity of all things. Bless it. May all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness growing May all beings be free of suffering and the causes of suffering decreasing. May all beings realize the sacred happiness that is sorrowless here and now. And may all green beings grow in equanimity, serenity, with less grasping and aversion to things, to people, to situations near and afar. May all beings live with ease. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.